Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Hour 2 of the Loving Liberty broadcast and podcast. I'm Brian Hyde. My phone lines are open. It's Friday, so, you know, let's have some fun. 801-331-8113. I want to make a very special invitation right at the beginning of the show. I'm going to mention this again before the hour is out. I would love to see you tomorrow at the Utah State Capitol between noon and 3 p.m. Reason being, there is a very special event taking place. This is part of the uh, Utah Business Revival's efforts to, to get us out of that state of fear and back into living our lives, albeit responsibly and albeit, you know, without casting caution to the wind. But to get us away from this sense that uh, we must all huddle like so many frightened sheep waiting for someone in authority to give us permission to start living our lives. Now, I've been to a couple of their events before. I went to the one at uh, the Salt Lake City County building a few weeks ago. Went to another one in Vineyard, Utah, just a couple of weeks ago. And I'm excited for the one coming up tomorrow at the Utah State Capitol. One of the reasons why the event coming up tomorrow holds particular interest for me is because there will be a focus on the spiritual. And I'm not trying to drag you kicking and screaming into another Sunday school lesson here, but please hear me out. For me personally, you know, freedom has always been a pretty cool idea. I always thought, yeah, you know, it makes sense. I prefer being free to being unfree. I, you know, I'm, I'm not so far out of the mainstream in feeling that way. But the part that really brought that spark alive and turned it into a roaring blaze in my heart was when I made the connection that there was a spiritual component to the American Revolution, to the founding period, to the, the, the very existence of this nation. In other words, uh, I'm not saying that, you know, it was founded as a theocracy and thus it should be. I'm just saying it could not be more clear to me that, uh, that if liberty was the goal, that God had a hand in making that happen. And that uh, informs my decisions to this day. It informs how I choose to live my life, what I choose to do with my life, my put, where I put my, my efforts, my, my moral energy is spent promoting that message of liberty with the understanding that it is the greatest gift that our Creator could possibly give us. And it's just a shame that, that we take it so lightly. We take it for granted. And I say that as one who has done that many times myself, I've taken it for granted. Yeah, man, I was born in America. I'm always going to be free. You know, it's not like I have to work for this. This is my birthright. Well, it turns out that, uh, you know, actually, (laughs) freedom is never just kind of a self-perpetuating thing. It requires maintenance. It requires diligence. And it requires especially vigilance on the part of the people that uh, people well-intentioned or maybe not so well-intentioned don't come into power and start chipping away at that freedom and taking it for their own purposes and, and for the purpose of seizing control or for dominating other people. I mean, if you can't see that we are in the midst of a, a, a power grab and a consolidation of power over all of us at every level, I don't know what it would take to wake you up. I mean, the fact that in some places you could get arrested simply for leaving your home or trying to ride the bus without a mask or going to watch the sunset on the beach or whatever it may be. We are seriously off course. 
And so I want to spend some time today talking about the, the positive aspect of this. Uh, that tomorrow, I think, is going to be a great opportunity for people to hear about the message of why our rights matter why it matters that we we understand they come to us either if you are a believer they are god-given rights they are we are endowed by our creator as jefferson put it in the declaration of independence or if you're not a believer you can at least acknowledge they are natural rights that are ours by virtue of the fact that we are living breathing human beings they do not come by dint of someone in government saying okay well i guess you can you can gather now, or you can open, open your business, or you can go to church, or shop, or whatever it may be. So I hope you'll come tomorrow, noon to 3 p.m., Utah State Capitol. I'm looking forward to seeing more of your smiling faces there. Uh, there's been a lot of folks who've shown up the last couple of times. Bring a mask if it makes you feel more, you know, protected. I, You know, some people have a real hard time with it. I'm not going to judge you for it. If it makes you feel safer, bring it. If you feel better about, you know, we're going to socially distance, we're not going to be shaking hands, that's fine too. If you want to come up and give me a hug, I will most likely gladly give you a hug. I mean, come on, if you come up and you're obviously like bleeding or, you know, snot running out of your nose, I might say, you know, maybe we'll just uh, give, you know, (laughs) a little distance social uh, greeting. Hey, how's it going? You get the point, though. All right, let's talk about uh, some of the protests that are going on across the nation. And one of the things that I find a little disturbing is it's very easy to focus on, well, look at the negativity of these these uh, protesters. Look how angry they look. Look at the fact that some of these guys brought guns. This is especially true in Michigan. And I know the, the mainstream media is playing it up as, look at this, the problem children have showed up once again, and they brought guns to the state capitol. Oh, this can only mean that they're up to evil or they're trying to intimidate or threaten people. Because it just doesn't occur to people in that authoritarian mindset that free people can peaceably bear arms, that free people not only have the right to keep those arms, they have the right to bear those arms, and if necessary, free people have the right to use those arms to protect their God-given rights. See, that's the part that really makes authoritarians get angry. This is why they want gun control, or I'm sorry, as they call it, common sense gun laws. We just want to make sure we don't have any weapons of war on our streets. Yeah, unless they're in the hands of your enforcers, in which case you can't get enough of them. What? Another MRAP? Well, yeah, we could use that. Well, we could use it for parades. We'll, we'll put this Orwellian term rescue vehicle on it just in case anybody questions. Why are you guys uh, bringing armored you know, vehicles from a war zone to small town USA? Well, it's in case we ever need to rescue you. Yeah, right. I think most people are starting to get the picture now. It's not about that. It's about being able to to flex authority and to project power in a military sense, particularly if they're worried that they may have to be dealing with starving, desperate people at some point. Not a pretty picture, I understand. But in the interest of trying to, to get behind the scenes, what exactly are the protesters in Michigan standing for? You know, there's a lot of subterfuge. Well, I saw some of those protesters had swastikas. So obviously they were they were pro-Nazi protesters. Really? Or is it possible that maybe they were saying that their governor is acting like a Nazi? And the swastika is calling attention to her approach to government. Which is my way or else. Just a thought. Well, there might have been a Confederate flag. Okay, I don't know. I haven't seen any of the Confederate flags 
But uh, the Confederate flag, whether you agree with it or not, is an excellent symbol of standing up against tyrannical central authority. But it's also a symbol for slavery. Well, it was many years ago when slavery still existed. But now that it doesn't, how brave is it to stand against slavery today? Right? It's not like uh, it's not like anybody's going around saying we want to return to slavery. If they want to return to slavery, all we have to do is basically shut up and do whatever these people in authority are telling us. Right. Oh, yeah. We're the slaves. Oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Welcome to reality. So in a minute here, I'm going to share with you an open letter to the tyrant of Michigan, which I think does a pretty fair job of expressing what is really behind these protesters who keep showing up at the Michigan Capitol. It's not just anti-government, pro-Nazi, pro-slavery, rah, 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 problem, children. You'll hear that it's people who recognize there's a very serious problem that's getting worse by the minute. And they know that they have to stand now, not later, when it's safe and everybody all agrees that this is a good time to do so. Let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Caller, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello there. Um... Just a thought I've had you know, watching what's unfolded um, in you know Michigan and Texas and several other places across the country. Are those, those lawmakers should count themselves very fortunate that the protesters and those of us in the liberty movement, particularly lately, as they've pushed the envelope more and more, as the lawmakers have pushed the envelope more and more, the lawmakers should count themselves extremely fortunate for the restraint that we all have shown so far. Oh, I completely agree. And, and I, I, I hope they don't mistake that restraint for weakness. Absolutely. I mean, there will come a point that the restraints we're placing on ourselves may be loosened. I, you know, I can't say what that point is for everyone. I haven't reached that point yet myself. But, but you can see the line in I the mean, sand from here, <laughs> or at least I can. <laughs> <laughs> our our founders would have had them in tar and feathers and written out of town by a rail long before now. I, I agree. Thank you so much for your call. We've got to take a break. This is Loving Liberty. Stick around. We'll be back after these messages. When th- Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I know I'm, I'm kind of wound up. Maybe it's just because it's the end of the week and I'm like, okay, I got I to gotta get this all out of my system before the weekend comes. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you're standing near the front, you're going to probably get the whole truckload. But actually, you can join the conversation, 801-331-8113. I want to share with you this letter, open letter, to the governor of Michigan. It's actually an open letter to the tyrant of Michigan. It's by John Houting. This was published on Intellectual Takeout. 
And I think it does a very good job of outlining how this is not just an irrational tantrum on the part of so many, you know, uh, you know, misanthropes who are out there wanting to run around with guns and and, uh, make everybody afraid. Listen to what John Houting has to say. He says, Dear Governor Whitmer, it appears the non-essentials are gathering to protest again today. Unfortunately, this third protest, termed Judgment Day by some, makes it a little hard for you to enjoy the contemplative life that government-mandated quarantine would seem to afford us. Yet given that this is your decision, and you have a guaranteed paycheck, I'm sure this isn't hitting you as hard as it is hitting the rest of us Michiganders, especially the aforementioned workers you've deemed non-essential. This distinction between essential and non-essential is curious, he says. You have rendered countless mothers and fathers who relied on their sources of income to provide for their families non-essential. However, you have deemed Planned Parenthood essential and fought to keep them up and running. And he says, by the way, I thought the whole point of this lockdown was to reduce the number of people getting killed. He says, I understand that certain industries need special treatment because of their benefit to the common good of the state, the military, for instance, or domestic manufacturing. But why Planned Parenthood or marijuana dispensaries? Could it be that these are essential because they make sense for you politically? That's surprising because you vowed to The New York Times that you are not thinking about politics. Were you also not thinking about of politics when you ignored the legislature, vetoing their legislation, preserving expanded unemployment benefits, and continuing the quarantine by executive fiat? He says, putting politics aside, is this quarantine really healthy for our state? Friendship seems to hold states together, wrote Aristotle, and lawmakers to care, for, care more for it than to for justice. The ancients understood that one of the chief roles of the lawmaker was to foster concord in the state and drive out, drive out faction. And so he says, we agree, admit it or not, this is why our legislators or our lawmakers rather created federal holidays, a national anthem, a national flag and a pledge of allegiance. What are these if not attempts at creating concord and driving out faction? Madam Governor, he asks, does it not seem you are doing the opposite? You are driving out concord and creating faction. Because of your order, we are not working and collaborating with one another, but living in isolation. And this is not only harmful to the state, but to the souls of those within it. He says men need friends in order to live virtuous lives. For example, it's difficult to perform just acts without others. In other words, friends. What's more, men learn by example and virtue is easier to observe in others. As Aristotle wrote in Nicomachean Ethics, we can contemplate our neighbors better than ourselves and their actions better than our own. And here this letter writer says, we may feel like we're taking a hiatus from virtue during this shutdown, but men's souls never rest. Men cannot help but make moral decisions every day, habituating their souls. Unfortunately, the longer this shutdown goes, the more we encourage the poor habituation of men's souls. Additionally, he asks, why did you lock down the entire state? Detroit is a hot spot for the virus, but Holland, Michigan is not Detroit. Your decision to implement a one-size-fits-all solution has caused countless small businesses throughout the state to close shop. Ask any small business owner, they will tell you cash flow is paramount. If a restaurant doesn't have cash coming in, it can't order more food, and it will go under. 
it is true. You have allowed restaurants to reopen their carryout services, but without indoor dining, they are still hurting. Do you really think shutting down the whole state is absolutely necessary? Now, he says, I'm not denying that this virus is real, nor am I denying that government should respond. But, Madam Governor, shouldn't we establish a common goal before we can deliberate about the means to reach said goal? This requires that we be honest about the nature of the issue at hand. Whenever a foreign entity, be it a person, microbe, or commercial good, enters America and kills innocent Americans, the response from members of the managerial elite, yourself included, is always an abrogation of our legal rights. We need secret trials, or we need expanded powers of search and seizure, or we need a stay-at-home order, etc. If the virus moved from without our nation into our nation then perhaps we should start deliberating over how to restrict the inflow of foreign goods and people so as to prevent this from happening again. He says neither you nor any of your colleagues seem interested in having that conversation. He says if you are correct in your estimation of the lethality of this foreign virus, then it seems clear that globalism carries a large price tag. Until you and your colleagues admit that, it is clear that you do not take this virus seriously. Signed, your fellow Michigander in quarantine, John Howding. That's pretty bold stuff. What do you think? 801-331-8113. Caller, welcome to the show. Yeah, Brian, Sam calling, and uh, um, good good article there. And I've also been uh, watching this one regarding this Seattle police officer who's come out and spoken out. To all of his fellow officers, that's another good one that's out there. So I'm glad to see more and more people speaking out. Um, here's where I'm having an issue with I'm trying to get across to uh, local uh, business owners that I know around here. These social distancing things were called guidelines, okay? That's what you hear repeatedly, social distancing guidelines, guidelines. Well, when I say the word guideline, what does a guideline mean to you? Does that mean... It's a recommendation. A, a recommendation, absolutely. And this is what I'm trying to get across. Everybody's taking it around here like it's orders. And I'm saying can't be both a guideline and a mandate at the same time. Either it's a guideline, which words mean things. I always remind people of that all the time. Words mean things. Understand that. A guideline is a recommendation. A mandate is an order. Well, first of all, if it's really your business, what are they doing mandating how far people should sit close or not close uh, or whatever? You know, I mean, if I go into an establishment, if you don't want to sit down next to me, I'm not over there breaking your arm, twisting it around your back and breaking your arm and saying, you will sit with me. Right. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not doing that, okay? But yet, on the other hand, what's going to happen? I come in and I have three or four friends with me and I go to sit down at a table, uh, I'm going to be pretty PO'd if you, uh, d- if you mandate that I social distance with my very own friends that I just walked in the door with. No, that makes sense. And that's the thing that's aggravating me. What I'm trying to get across is that it's not, it's not a restaurant's place to determine whether you should social distance or not. That's up to you. If you don't want to sit with people, then don't sit with people. Go find yourself a place to sit or go in there when the place is less crowded or whatever the case may be. But I don't like this whole idea of somebody saying, okay, well, you have to sit over here, and and some places are cordoning off tables and all this kind of stuff. You know, I, and of course, right away, 
the thing that everybody's afraid of is that their license will be pulled. Well, my attitude is maybe what you ought to do is take the approach of that barber up there in Michigan that he took. Um, and, and he did get his license pulled. Yes, he did. Since He's the, still going. Yeah, since the governor couldn't arrest him or didn't dare send you know police to arrest him, they just revoked his license. And I I agree with him. You know, keep on cutting hair. If it were if I was closer, I would go see him because I need a haircut, like right now. I would too. <laughs> I would too. In fact, I'll tell you, there's one place here in town that I go to specifically, and I won't say it on the air because I don't want people to uh, you know I don't want the the, the possibility of repercussions. But there's a place I go to simply because they're not pushing the social distancing stuff. I love it. It's a great thing to have choices. Sam, thank you. Thank you so much for your call, rather. We will take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about federalism. We're getting a good lesson in what federalism looks like. And by the way, Elon Musk is one of the reasons why we're getting that lesson. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. All right, welcome back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. 801-331-8113 is my number. So there's a, there's this very central theme that I think we need to uh, repeat as many times as it takes for us to commit this to memory. Because uh, there there's a misconception, and the more things are, are repeated that are not correct, the more likely it is to lodge in our brains, and we walk around saying something that, that does not necessarily reflect reality. Matt Kibbe, by the way, is the one who made this observation. He said media is referring to the economic devastation, quote, caused by the pandemic. And here's the point that we need to get absolutely crystal clear. He says the contagion itself is a huge hit. It's a natural disaster. But the Great Suppression, the mass unemployment and impoverishment is entirely man-made by lockdown politicians. They own it. I think that's worth uh, getting your mind around because the solution is going to be stop letting them get away with it. So let's talk a little bit about to the concept of federalism. Now, I can remember it wasn't so long ago where I thought federalism, why, that must mean the federal government has authority to do anything at once and federal is superior and supreme and blah, blah, blah. No, actually, it means quite the opposite. And it took me a little while to get my mind around that. But once I was clear on the concept, that is exactly what the founders wanted. They wanted a system of government. It's not just, you know, it's not just a brand name like, uh, you know, the Democrats or Republicans. Federalism describes a system in which the states retain sovereignty in just about every aspect of their existence, with the exception of some very small areas where they have common interests. And they delegate authority to the federal government, which they created through the Constitution, that legal contract, which we call a compact because it involves more than one party, or more than just two parties, rather. And that's how they did it. They created a federal government. They gave it supreme power in certain areas where they all had mutual interest. But the day-to-day governance was left to the states and to the people from which the states derived their political power. 
We don't see that much. In fact, uh, thank you, Mr. Lincoln. (laughs) We haven't seen a lot of this since about 1865 when uh, federalism was tipped on its head. And instead of having a federal form of government, we had a national form of government where a large centralized bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. dictates to the states. This is what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And D.C. has asserted what it considers superior authority. That was not the intention of the founders, but it was the outcome of the war between the states or Lincoln's War of Involuntary Union or the War of Northern Aggression, whichever you want to call it. It wasn't a civil war, but it was definitely a war which put an end to federalism. But you're starting to see a little bit of a resurgence of federalism. And you might actually see a little bit more of this in the wake of COVID-19. Elon Musk, whatever you may think of him, beat a California dictate because he raised the prospect of, you know, maybe I will just take my plant and take it to another state. Now, frankly, I'm surprised in many cases that that, uh, some of the big industries in California haven't done this already, just because California is such a heavily taxed and heavily regulated state. No, I've never lived there, but I've talked with a lot of people who've escaped. And I've seen more than a few friends within just the last few weeks say, I am so glad I left because they're looking at the lockdown procedures. They're not even business owners. You know, business owners understand it better than almost anybody. What it's like to try to get something done with the ever present, just massive bureaucracy that is California. So there's a great article here from Dan Sanchez, who has been on top of this story involving Elon Musk and the Tesla car plant in Fremont, California. He says, as I discussed on Wednesday, the Alameda County Health Department backed down in its face off with Elon Musk, Elon Musk rather, over the closure of Tesla's car plant in Fremont. Musk reopened the factory, openly defying the government's order to remain closed. And health officials acquiesced to the fait accompli by granting it after the fact provisional approval. <laughs> I guess the, the this is this is just trying to save face. You can't quit. You're fired. Anyway, Dan Sanchez says, as I argued previously, Musk's act qualified as economic civil disobedience, especially since he expressly offered himself up for arrest and punishment. His ultimate success was a testament to the power of that peaceful strategy for political change. The government probably wanted to avoid the public controversy that would result from jailing someone like Musk. But there was another consideration in play that probably influenced the official decision to relent. Shortly before daring the government to arrest him, Musk had also threatened to simply leave California over the COVID-19 lockdown. This is what he tweeted. Quote, frankly, this is the final straw. Tesla will now move its HQ and future programs to Texas or Nevada immediately. Even if we retain Fremont manufacturing activity at all, it will be dependent on how Tesla is treated in the future. Tesla is the last car maker left in California. End quote. Now, that's a serious threat. And as Tesla's website states, as one of the largest manufacturing employers in California, Tesla stimulated $5.5 billion in sales activity and generated $4.1 billion in direct spending in the state in fiscal year 2017 alone. That same year, Tesla also created 51,000 jobs in California, including our employees and jobs throughout our supply chain. Now, Dan Sanchez says that surely amounts to a lot of tax revenue, which government officials are no doubt wary of letting slip away. 
And it's not like Tesla's lacking options. There's no shortage of American states eager to receive all that economic activity and revenue. Musk mentioned Texas and Nevada, but Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt, a Republican, immediately volunteered his state to be Tesla's news home. New home, rather. Stitt replied directly to Musk's last straw tweet on the very same day, writing, Hey, Oklahoma is open for business. We're doing it safely, responsibly, and based on the data in our state. Elon Musk, he says, let's talk. P.S. Route 66 would make a great place for a test drive. Now, not to be outdone, Colorado Governor Jared Polis, a Democrat, also publicly courted Musk on Twitter, writing, We want you here, Elon Musk, in Colorado. We are the best of all worlds. We're very pro-business, low taxes, pro-immigration, pro-LGBT, globally minded. Bright, smart, motivated people love to live here. Tesla HQ, Cybertruck, Gigafactory, look no further. Now, Musk graciously, though noncommittally, responded to his suitor. Hi, Jared. Colorado's great. I think your policies make a lot of sense. Now, contrast those welcoming invitations to his treatment in California, where Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez responded to the t- same tweet by writing, F. Elon, Elon Musk. She did not censor it, by the way. To which one Twitter user answered, you already did. That's why he's leaving. Yet, as it turns out, even California cannot screw its tax-paying producers with complete impunity, and its officials know it. And this is owing to another safeguard of freedom that is as deeply American as civil disobedience, that is, federalism. Dan Sanchez says, imagine if states were not allowed to determine any policies of their own. If all policies were set at the national level, and if the Lorena Gonzalez's of the world reigned in Washington... There would be no place of refuge for producers like Musk other than leaving the country, or maybe in Musk's case, eventually the planet. With much fewer options, unruly entrepreneurs like Musk would be in a much weaker position when they push back against onerous government impositions. But since Americans are able to vote with their feet, state governments are at least partially incentivized to compete for their tax dollars, often by vying to be less oppressive than rival states. And that's exactly what you're seeing when you have state governors tweeting that they're open for business or promising low taxes, competing to woo a private citizen. It's also probably what you're seeing when California bureaucrats stand down in the face of outright defiance. This is called jurisdictional competition, and it has played an enormous role in the history of liberty and prosperity, not just for America, but for civilization as a whole. Dan Sanchez reminds us that America's federal structure has withered under the constant assault of centralizers in Washington. But he says we owe much of the liberty and prosperity we retain to the extent to which it has survived. And it may play an even bigger role in a post-COVID-19 America. While most of the states of the Union have imposed some restrictions on freedom in the wake of the pandemic, there have been huge variations, with some governments grimly committing to draconian, economy-crippling lockdowns for months to come others imposing imposing lighter restrictions that they are already beginning to lift. Maybe the strict governments are right. They'll become havens of survival while their rival states become death traps. Or maybe they're wrong and they will become economic wastelands while their rivals become prosperous refuges for producers. In either case, federalism will prove beneficial as taxpayers can vote with their feet to reward the wiser policymakers. I love it. Dan Sanchez says this is one of the biggest reasons that it's vital to avoid centralized, top-down solutions, even for the biggest and scariest problems like pandemics. Decentralization, he says, is better both for freedom 
and problem solving. What a great essay. I'll have it linked in the show notes. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Once again, I just want to take this opportunity to remind those of you within earshot, if you have the chance to join us Saturday, May 16th at the Utah State Capitol between noon and 3 p.m., it's going to be very worth your while. The Utah Business Revival is back at it again. And if you want to socially distance, you can socially distance. Wear a mask. You're not going to get judged. Nobody's going to wish that you get sick because you're not doing what, we, what everybody else is doing. But come and listen, because it is a a spiritual revival as well, in the sense that you're going to be hearing from a number of different spiritual leaders from throughout Utah, throughout the northern part of the state, I would suspect. And this is one of those really important uh, issues. I mean, look, it's great to see businesses starting to open back up. It was great to see people gather a few weeks ago at the city-county building in defiance of these directives and, you know, these these mandates being handed down by non-lawmakers Thou shalt not gather in groups of more than ten and so forth. Huff and puff and we ought to have people taken away for doing this without our permission. And yet it went off without a hitch. Well, now, Brian, what if some people came down with coronavirus? I heard maybe a couple people who were at that uh, that first event were actually diagnosed with COVID-19. It's very possible. Do we know for sure they got it there? I don't know. You know, when you anytime you get people together, whether it's at, uh, you know, Home Depot or whether it's at Costco or Walmart or whatever, when you get people together, there is always that chance. I don't see people freaking out over the fact that people are still out there shopping and gassing up their cars and that sort of stuff. But I'm grateful that we have the opportunity again tomorrow afternoon between noon and three to hear some of the messages pertaining to the spiritual aspects of what we need to be thinking about as we make our way through this pandemic and toward and through the aftermath. Because the whole shutting down of of worship, that's a pretty tough thing. Even in communist countries, you know, the governments, no matter how despotic they got, realize, you know, we can't shut this off entirely. People would have their black market church meetings and underground church meetings. I think you might see something similar if these kind of things aren't eased sooner than later. And when it comes to all of our freedoms, you know, freedom of conscience is one of the most precious and not something that we should consider surrendering lightly. It brings me to a commentary from Art Carden. I found this on the American Institute for Economic Research's website. We don't need one big plan to end the lockdown. And this, to me, this, I may be wrong, but this seems to be the source of of a lot of the, the anger and a lot of the friction that we hear out there about, you know, is it time to take us from condition orange to condition yellow, as I believe Governor Herbert in my home state of Utah has said is going to happen tomorrow. Yes, we're lowering the restrictions and whatnot. Well, that's all fine and dandy. But the bottom line is I don't think a one-size-fits-all solution was necessary in the first place. Just like New York, particularly, you know, in what was it in uh, Brooklyn or Queens where they had, you know, the the real hot spot outbreak of COVID-19. That's not the rest of the country. And so if South Dakota's governor says, well, we're not shutting down our businesses, we're not locking down the economy and telling everybody to stay home. 
They're not New York City. They shouldn't have to. And I think the numbers bear it out. They've actually weathered the storm quite well without sticking a knife in the heart of their businesses. Art Carden says, during periods of great uncertainty, it's customary to hear calls for someone with a plan. And the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, has been no different in this response. Politicians, commentators, and frightened members of the public are looking with misplaced faith, he believes, towards places like Washington, D.C., or the state capitol, or the mayor's office, for someone with a clear, articulated solution that will put all this behind us. Now, he says the air is thick with what-ifs, and the Internet is thick with memes mocking long-haired freaks who want to end the lockdowns so they can get their hair cut, or on the opposite side of the transaction so they can cut hair. What, people wonder, is the plan? We get nervous when it becomes clear that there simply isn't one. Some of us chalk it up to incompetence or malevolence and then go looking for someone who can make a plan work. But Art Carden says this isn't the right way to think about planning to continue addressing the COVID-19 pandemic, however. See, the problem isn't identifying and implementing one plan to rule them all. The problem, such as it is, is to coordinate and integrate the disparate and often conflicting plans of almost 8 billion people on the planet. Just as no single mind or central committee of minds knows how to make a pencil, no single mind or central committee of minds knows how to plan an epidemic response. He says it's very easy to speak in terms of vague generalities like food, medicine, and shelter, and education. But he says once we get into the details, it's hard to go much beyond that. So he says, I'll use myself and my family as an illustration and show how no one knows how to successfully plan a COVID-19 response. Now, he says, importantly, solutions aren't created and imposed by our cognitive betters. They bubble up often in undesigned and unarticulated patterns. Software and information technology provide an important illustration. Suddenly, a lot of people had to move their operations online. And this means a big uptick in the use of services like Zoom, Google Hangouts, FaceTime, WebEx, and others. A lot of people get into computer science and com computer engineering out of sheer fascination or a desire to make the world a better place. Some people get into it for the money. Some are left-wing revolutionaries. Importantly, he says, I don't have to know or even approve of people's motives in order to be able to cooperate with them and use their knowledge to advance my own ends. They don't have to know or approve of my motives in order to serve me or to make use of the knowledge I have. He says, we homeschooled before we started sending our kids to a nearby independent Charlotte Manson-influenced school. So we were able to make a smoother transition than some from our normal routine to schooling at home. Now, it meant making some adjustments. And he says, I basically turned our front porch into my new office. But when my classes moved online, he said, I needed to expand my technological capabilities. I bought a pair of Apple iPod Pro Noise canceling headphones. A few years ago, I'd gotten a pair of life-changing Bose QC35s, which I proceeded to lose on a trip in October of 2017. The AirPods have been simply incredible. They're small. They fit in my ears comfortably. They're almost completely canceling out the low noise or the, the, a lot of the low rumble of urban noise like air conditioners, far-off street noise, and seriously muffle other noise, nearby street noise, lawnmowers, etc. He says, I can still hear most birdsong. Not a bad thing. But for the most part, I'm able to enjoy remarkable quiet in the midst of urban and domestic chaos. So do I know how the technology works? 
No, he says not without Googling it. And even then, I know sufficiently little about sound engineering and physics to really understand what's going on. He says, I'll take Apple's word for it. In my experience with their customer service personnel, they have been pretty trustworthy. Any company with a trillion-dollar-plus valuation has a lot riding on good customer experience. Now, he says, consider the number of people who've been involved in bringing me something as simple as a set of noise-canceling headphones. First, there are the engineers. They're the ones who designed the product and how to set it up so that it would meet my demanding specifications. As with a pencil, I'm able to harness and deploy knowledge I myself don't have for purposes the engineers may not understand. But it goes deeper than this, though. Someone somewhere did the basic research to help us understand the physics of sound and to make a product like noise-canceling wireless earbuds possible. And he says, this doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of the knowledge I'm able to use in response to the coronavirus pandemic. For instance, he says, I dictated an earlier version of this article into a Google document. I'm able to use software I didn't write and almost certainly couldn't write to simply speak and have my words transcribed into written text in a Google document with a remarkably low error rate compared to what voice-to-text used to be like. Remote technologies have also made social distancing a lot easier. In the 90s, when I was in college, movie courses online would almost certainly have been far more difficult. The Internet as we know it was in its infancy. Email was a relatively new technology. And when I needed to do homework, I had to write with a pen or a pencil on paper. Moving things online has also been made a lot easier by video sharing sites like YouTube and Vimeo. In his 2008 book, Create Your Own Economy, Tyler Cowen pointed out how a lot of the jobs of a professor or teacher would increasingly become the curation of content. Statista reports that in 2007, people were uploading six hours of video to YouTube every minute. By May of 2019, they were uploading about 500 hours of video to YouTube every minute. If your full-time job was to watch YouTube content 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, it would take you an entire year working full-time to watch the content uploaded in about four minutes. Now, of course, a lot of this is garbage, and a lot of it won't advance our pedagogical goals, but a lot of it, however, is absolute gold. I think he has a point worth considering. To a lot of commentators, he says, with what economist Thomas Sowell called the unconstrained vision... Dealing with social problems like the pandemic lockdown is fundamentally like baking bread. It's simply a matter of finding the right recipe, the right ingredients, and the right cook. A great mind, or committee of great minds. Well, while a lot of us have enjoyed homemade bread during the COVID-19 pandemic, the recovery problem is of a fundamentally different kind. A transition back to normal life and calls coordination of disparate, often incompatible plans of billions of minds. And we were making a mistake if we look for a plan to make that happen.